of God's Word. We're going to read it together because we're on the Beatitudes tonight. And uh, next week, I'll finish the Beatitudes and, and begin getting further into the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the greatest sermon ever preached. Greatest, easy, far and away, far and above. Nothing's ever been preached like the Sermon on the Mount. Of course, it came from Jesus, who just happened to be God, right? So, but the Beatitudes are the first things he taught as he began the Sermon on the Mount. So this is really a part of the Sermon on the Mount. But let's read it together. We're just going to go through the Beatitudes. It's pretty quick. And then we'll get down into um, three more tonight. Ready? And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed. How many of you are starting to get blessed? A lot of blessing going on here. Ready? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now look at this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You wouldn't think that you're blessed when you're being persecuted, but Jesus said you are. Father, we just thank you for your blessing on the word. Now, Lord, open our eyes. By the Spirit of God, anoint our ability to get the truth from this that you gave to us, that we would know that as your children, we are blessed. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Tell your neighbor it's going to be good tonight. Amen. Amen. Now, um, we're going to do three more tonight, and that leaves two next week, and then we will get into the first part of, this, of the actual Sermon on the Mount or the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, last time we began the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, and uh, all of the Beatitudes begin with the pronouncement, blessed are. There's eight of them, or if you consider hunger and thirst two uh, standalones, then there's nine, but blessed every time blessed. So what you have with the Beatitudes is Jesus giving us a pathway to blessing. Amen? If you want to really be blessed, remember what blessed means. It means happy and to be envied. Happy and to be envied are, and he gives us eight conditions, heart conditions, character conditions, and says, blessed are you if with that condition, you, you turn to me. In other words, you're poor in spirit, turn to me and I'll make you rich in your spirit, right? Uh, if you're meek, then I'm going to give you the future new earth. Um, tonight, we're going to see what we receive if we meet certain conditions. Now, again, happy and to be envied. It has nothing to do with material wealth. When it says blessed, has nothing to do with material wealth. He is not talking about money. He's not talking about finances. He's talking about spiritual riches. Do you get that? All right? So God's comfort is spiritual riches. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is spiritual riches. Inheriting the earth, the brand new earth that he's going to make, according to the end of the book of Revelation, I, he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. Wherein dwelleth righteousness. And, and that's spiritual blessing. Nothing in the Beatitudes has to do with material wealth. Nothing. Because actually, folks, spiritual wealth is the greatest wealth. If you've got the peace of God tonight, no matter what's happening around you, you're rich. If you've got the love of God poured out in your heart by the Holy Ghost, you are rich. You can be Bill Gates and be poor in your spirit. But you can be living in a tent, but know Christ, and you're richer than Bill Gates. 
That's just a fact. That's the way Jesus saw it. So the way Jesus saw riches is the way I want to see riches. We also know that there seems to be a progression in the Beatitudes. I see a progression. I can't get away from it. Uh, in a person's spiritual journey, beginning with realizing you're in spiritual poverty. That's the first thing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The poverty stricken in spirit. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit and know it. Okay? They're aware of it. And this is our condition just before we're saved. The Holy Ghost comes and convicts us. We see our need for Christ, and we realize instead of having it, having it all and being just fine, we realize that we are miserable, wretched, poor, blind, and naked. And we need the riches of Christ. We need forgiveness and everything that comes with knowing him. So blessed are those that mourn. You're mourning over your sin. You will be comforted when you turn to Christ and he forgives you. Amen? So there is a progression. There's a progression. Then moving on into spiritual maturity with the appearance of meekness in your life. Because Jesus was meek, and one of the fruits of the Spirit is meekness. And that means strength held back. That means I trust God to defend me. That means I'm not going to take vengeance. I am, I am strength under control. I am strength in check. Meek. That's a fruit of the Spirit. It's akin to self-control. Let me tell you something. The evidence of the Holy Spirit upon you is not losing control. It's acquiring self-control. Where you're able to say no to something. Yes to something. Yes to the right things. No to the wrong things. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. I am, I am under the control of the Holy Spirit, not out of control in the flesh. All right? So this time we're going to continue with one of the greatest evidences of true salvation. Here's one of the true proofs that you and I have truly been saved. Hunger and thirst for the things of God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. What a strange saying if you step back and really look at it. It's, it's, you got to stop and consider what you just heard. Um, Blessed are those who are hungry to be righteous, thirsty to be righteous. Where does that come from? Let me tell you where it comes from. One of the clear signs that somebody has truly been born again is an inner desire and hungering and thirsting for the word of God, for Bible teaching, to grow in grace to cultivate a righteous life that pleases the Lord, to worship him, anything having to do with the things of God, when you get a brand new nature, if any man be in Christ, any woman be in Christ, they are a brand new creation. The old has passed away. That old Adam nature has passed away. And a brand new nature, all has become new. Now you've got a brand new nature, and we are partakers of the divine nature. With that comes some appetites that we have never known before some appetites that we have, some desires, some longings that we have never experienced before because we weren't saved. Listen to Peter. He says, as newborn babes, desire. Everybody say desire. Watch this now. Desire what? The pure milk of the word. As newborn babes, I want you to desire something. You do desire something. It is an immediate hunger the milk of the word, so that you can grow thereby. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So here's Peter identifying one of the immediate first signs of somebody that's really been born again. They can't get enough of the things of God. I remember when I got saved, the very first thing I did, I was in juvenile home, as all of you know, and um, I asked the guard to leave my light on. And I was in a cell alone. And the, the preacher had given me a little New Testament, little striped New Testament, good news for modern man. And I'd never read the Bible in my life. I had no idea what was in the Bible. But I asked him to leave the light on. And I opened up this little striped New Testament. 
and I began to devour everything that Jesus said and everything he had done. I read and read and read. I never knew any of these things, and I read and soaked it up and drank it up and ate it up. I couldn't get enough, and it only got worse after that. Right? Because why? It's a new nature. It's not some religious thing you're doing because you know you should. No, it's genuine hunger, genuine thirst of a spiritual kind. Are you with me? David knew about this, and he was in the Old Testament. David wrote of this hunger and thirst while he was in the wilderness of Judah fleeing from Saul. He said in Psalms 42, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. Listen to what he says. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? I wish everybody would wake up on Sunday morning with that thought. When, when can I go meet with God? Where can I go? I'm ready to go. It's not a duty. It's a delight. Are you with me, everybody? He, he talked this way again in Psalm 63. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. Listen to his verbiage. I thirst for you. I thirst for you. My soul longs for you. In a dry and a parched land where there is no water. He's saying, when I'm in a place where there is a spiritual famine, can anyone say America? Then what do I do? I go to the source of living water and real life. I'm thirsty and I'm hungry for God. And if I can touch God, though all around me is famine, I will live, I will flourish, I will grow, and I will not wilt and die. All right? So, so over and over again, we see these, these men of God saying there's a, there's a hungering and there's a thirsting for the things of God, for the person who knows God. You can't get enough of God. Here's what I've learned about me. I'm going to be real transparent. I cannot eat one Chips Ahoy. You know how many times I've told myself, you're watching some show and you go, I'm going to run the refrigerator. I'm only going to get two. Just two. And you get those two and you walk back and you eat them and they are so amazingly good. You begin justifying more. You find yourself at the refrigerator again. Well, I'll just two more. I'll ride another mile tomorrow morning, right? But, but I cannot. A chip, now, we talk about you can't eat one, what is it, Cheeto or what? Huh? Okay. With me, it's a Chips Ahoy. I can't eat just one. And if they're gone, I start thinking, when can I go and get another bag? Okay. So here's the thing. When you, when you really meet God, you can't get enough. You, you never walk away going, I can't get enough. You, you never walk away saying, um, well, that's enough. I don't need any more. No, 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 no. You got to go back to the well, back to the water, back to the bread of life. You got to keep going back because you can't get enough. That new nature of yours has some hungers and appetites and longings you never had when you were lost. Amen. Now, Peter uses the word desire. He said, desire, the sincere milk of the word. That word desire is so strong. Um, it, it means to long for, to strain after, um, to desire greatly. It's a very intense word. To have affection. Are you ready? To crave. Have you ever experienced craving for God. I've got to get to that meeting. I've got to see. I've got to get into the presence of God. I've got to go hear a word. I've got to get into the presence of God. I need a word from the Bible. I don't need men's thoughts. I want a word from the Bible. I want God to speak to me. I want to encounter God. I want to encounter the Holy Ghost of God. I want the things of God. And it's a craving. That's, that's the word. It's a craving. Isn't that powerful? And I want to tell you, the more you feed that craving, the stronger it will become. And the less you feed it, the less you sense it. It's like when you fast. 
for a while, you're very hungry. But you reach a place where you're no longer hungry. You're just not hungry anymore because your stomach has shrunk. And you're just not feeling the hunger pangs like you were. Okay? It's that way when you get away from God. You lose the hunger. But if you get up every day and get into that good word and go into prayer and do it every day, you're going to have, you're going to experience that. I'm not saying it won't ebb and flow. It will. But there is a constant hunger for the child of God. That new nature requires it. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. When was the, when did you ever experience that when you were lost? Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Everybody say, never. When did you ever wake up when you were lost and go, man, today I am so hungry for righteousness. No, you were thinking, what sin am I going to do today? How am I going to feed my flesh today? Not when you've got a brand new nature. Jesus said, you shall be filled. God will abundantly supply what you need from the riches of his kingdom. Jesus told the woman at the well, everybody who drinks this well water is going to thirst again. But the water that I give them, they're never going to thirst again. Because the water I give in them will be a, a spring of water welling up into eternal life. Jesus said, when I give you the real water, the living water, the Holy Spirit that I'm going to pour out on you, when I give you that, you're never going to have to look elsewhere for that spiritual need to be met because you're going to discover I meet that need and no one else does. To another crowd of followers, he said, I'm the bread of life and uh, whoever comes to me will never go hungry. So we'll never thirst and we'll never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But Jesus used um, natural il illustrations or metaphors to describe a spiritual reality. Spiritual thirsting, spiritual hunger. The answer to our inner hunger and thirst, this is easy, it's Jesus. The water of life and the bread of life. And you don't need to go anywhere else once you find him. That's what he means by you will never thirst again. You're not going to have to go on a hunt because everything you were looking for and all the drugs and all of the, the different pursuits you had when you were lost, when you come to Christ, you came home. Amen? And Jesus always assured us of the Father's willingness to take care of our hunger and thirst. He said, don't be afraid, little flock. Uh, for it gives your Father great happiness to give you the kingdom. Amen. So God is a giver of the kingdom. Amen. So next, Jesus moves on. And you, you do see this is spiritual progression. This person was poor in spirit. Then they were mourning over their sin. Then they were beginning to produce meekness in their life. But now they are craving the things of God. Then Jesus focus, focuses on another fruit of the Spirit next, and it's mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. So here you got the law of sowing and reaping in what Jesus said. If we're merciful with others, God will be merciful toward us in the day of trouble. Amen? So if you sow mercy, you're going to reap mercy. That's what Jesus just said. If you're a sower of mercy, you're going to reap it. If you sow judgmentalism without mercy, more than likely you're going to reap some of that in your day of trouble. So Jesus said, be sure in all of your sowing that you sow some mercy. Blessed, happy to be envied are the merciful because they're going to obtain mercy. Now there's two words in Greek uh, that are translated as mercy or merciful. One of them, I know this is Greek to you, but I'll say it anyway. Eleamon, eleamon, eleamon. And it points to the outward manifestation of pity, uh, to be compassionate, to be kind or show goodwill towards somebody who is afflicted combined with a desire to help them. You, you see somebody in need, they can't help themselves, 
instead of judging them or being callous towards them, apathetic towards them, mercy comes up. And that mercy wants to manifest in helping the helpless. Blessed are the merciful. In Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, you remember a man walking down a road is robbed and beaten and left for dead. He's left bleeding profusely on the side of the road. He's dying in Jesus' parable. He's dying. And Jesus said three people proceed to walk by him, confront him. The first is a priest high up in the spiritual echelon of those who are admired for representing God, a priest. And what does he do? He sees the bleeding man in dire need, maybe crying out for help, maybe moaning, groaning. And what does the priest do? He scoots the other side of the road and acts like he doesn't see him and walks on. The representative of God, uh-huh. Next, a Levite comes. Who were the Levites? The Levites were the keepers of the temple. They, they watched over the temple. They are the ones that received the tithe of the people because when they allotted the land in the Old Testament under Moses' law, when they took the promised land, all the other tribes got acreage, but not the Levites. Levites didn't get acreage because they were uniquely called of God. So God moved on the people because everybody back then was a farmer. You, you got them into the promised land. You got the acres so you could farm them. There, there was no industrial revolution. There were no machines. There were donkeys, mules, horses, plows, hoes, uh, 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 rakes, shovels. That's it. So you, you lived off the land. That's why you got to trust God for the weather. Lord, help us now. You had to trust God to bless you with rain. You were totally dependent on God being in charge of the climate. Because you had the early rain, the latter rain, the sowing, the time of reaping, and you wanted a full field of food. And so God told all the other 11 tribes, I want you to take a part of what you've grown and take it to the temple and give it to the Levites because we, they weren't given acreage. They were not allotted land. I mean, they may have had a horse or a mule, maybe a cow to milk, but they didn't have acres to sow. So the Levites were the particularly called of God to represent him in the temple. But this Levite goes the other side of the road. And walks on by. Good luck. Now here comes a Samaritan that no Jew even wanted to be seen around. They wouldn't talk to Samaritans. One at the well was a Samaritan. This was a racial barrier. But Jesus came to pull down racial barriers. And Jesus told, Jesus said that it's the Samaritan that stopped. He was a Gentile. He bandaged him up. He looked at him. And what did he feel? Mercy. Mercy stopped him in his tracks. Mercy caused him to act. So he bandaged him up, poured oil on his wounds, loaded him onto his donkey, and took him to the Holiday Inn. It says in, I'm just putting holiday in front of it, right? And, and he told the innkeeper, he said, however long he's here, when I come back, I'll cover the tab. Now, Jesus said, which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among thieves? Well, he answered his own question. He said, he who showed mercy. Blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Mercy moved him to act. So what did Jesus then say? You go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. 
let that sink in. And we're living in a very selfish culture. You're looking for mercy, don't look out there. They'll crucify you. Very little mercy out there. I'm not saying there's not people that will show mercy, but I'm telling you it's, it's getting onto the endangered species list. There's not a whole lot of mercy out there. People are not what they used to be, let's face it. They're not. So if you're looking for mercy, where do you get it? Well, guess what? You're saved because of mercy. I want you to notice this, this wounded man uh, who was robbed and beaten almost to death. He hadn't done anything wrong. He didn't need forgiveness. He hadn't done anything wrong to anybody. He didn't need forgiveness. He needed mercy. He just needed somebody to have some mercy. You know why? Because he couldn't help himself. I'm dying. I've been beaten almost to death. There is no way that I will live if somebody doesn't have mercy on me. Jesus picked the most unlikely candidate to have mercy. So mercy is when you show compassion and offer help to somebody who can't help themselves. One person wrote, mercy is not a weak sympathy which feels but never does anything to help. It is not the silent, passive pity which could be genuine but never seems to be able to help in a tangible way. It's not any of these superficial things. It is genuine compassion with a pure, unselfish motive that reaches out to help somebody who can't help themselves. That's mercy. James wrote about faith and mercy in a hypothetical. Here's the hypothetical. If you've got a friend who's in need of food and clothing, and you say to him, hey, well, goodbye, God bless, stay warm and eat hearty, and then you don't give him clothes or food, what good does that do? That's not mercy. Ephesians said, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, did we not? Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature the children of wrath. By nature. Like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in what? That's five of you. God being rich in what? Not just merciful, but rich in mercy. Because of the great love. Rich mercy, great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. While we were were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He had mercy because we were never going to be able to help ourselves. We were on the roadside of life, bleeding to death. And we would have died in our sins if he had not had rich mercy. Amen? Jesus talked about how God is kind and merciful, even to the unlovely and unthankful. He said, for he, God, is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just like your Father also is merciful. God blesses people who wake up every day and curse his name. He blesses people who blaspheme him throughout the day. It says it is the goodness of God in hopes of leading them to repentance. Jesus said, you be like God. You be merciful. Because the day invariably comes, folks, when we're going to have a day of trouble. So don't confess that over me, Pastor. If I don't have to confess it over you, that's life. Everybody has days of trouble. Anybody had one already yet this year, a day of trouble? Come on. Well, I'm not going to confess it. Well, don't confess it. It's still true. Okay? So when we have that day of trouble, that's when you need to say, thank God, in my spiritual bank account, I've got mercy. Amen? Now we've got one more, and we're going to close tonight. The next, uh, Jesus deals next with another, another clear evidence of being saved. Purity of heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
Bless are the pure in heart. Now, here again, we've got a desire in somebody to be pure, which is uniquely and only found in a born-again soul. The, the lost don't care about being pure with the kind of purity God looks for. They don't care about that. Lost people don't care. I didn't care. But you get a new nature by coming to Christ, then there is this longing to live a life that pleases God. And we're going to see in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is real concerned about our heart. Blessed are the pure where? In heart. In heart. The heart is used metaphorically in the Bible to signify the inner person. It's the control center of your mind, uh, your emotions and your will, your heart. It's the control center of your life. It's your invisible innermost being that shapes your life, your attitudes, your convictions, and ultimately your actions. How you live your life out every day springs out of your heart. It's the control center. It's the instrument panel. It's the steering wheel. Jesus said that what comes out of our mouth comes from the heart. Anything you say comes out of your heart. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a man. And where do they come from? They come from the control center, the heart. So to Jesus, the heart is completely crucial. All right? He's after your heart. He wants to be on the throne of your heart. He's going to deal with your heart and my heart. If we get unforgiveness in our heart or hate in our heart or lust in our heart or greed in our heart, he's going to deal with our heart because that's the control center. Everything in your life comes out of that place in you called the heart. Man looks on the outer appearance, but God looks on the heart. That's what God looks at. When Jesus met somebody, he scanned them quick and looked at their heart. He knew exactly what their inner motives were. He read their mail all the time because he read their heart. So Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. Happy to be envied if your heart is pure. Those whose minds and motives and principles are pure. Who seek not only to have their outer behavior in line with God's will, but desire to be holy and right and good with God within. Now to be pure has two meanings and you can easily remember this. One, you already know to make pure by cleansing something from dirt or filth or contamination, like metals being refined by fire until they're free from all impurities. Right? A goldsmith will slide that gold into the oven It melts down, and he'll look for for impurities to rise to the top. And he's got a skimmer, and he'll skim very carefully those impurities off the top. And then he brings the gold out, and you have purified gold. Blessed are the purified hearts. The second meaning for pure is to be unmixed or undivided, uh, no duplicity, which is the meaning of integrity. It means what you see is what you get, and what you get is what you see. There's not two of me. I don't live one way in public and another privately. I am who I am at all times. That's the other meaning of pure. So I'm not with Jesus on Sunday and with the world on Monday. Okay, can I just get real? Because there's a whole lot of people who live that way. They, they kind of do their religious duty going to church on Sunday, but on Monday to Friday, you can't tell them apart from the world. But Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, those whose hearts I have at all times. Jesus quoted Isaiah to the people of his day. 
Jesus said, quoted Isaiah, it says this, quote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Oh, yeah, praise the Lord, hallelujah, kumbaya. Sure, I believe in Jesus. Sure, I'm a Christian. Oh, yeah. But their heart is far from him, and that's what he looks at. That's the idea, blessed are the pure in heart, because he sees it. So purity isn't just being clean. It's to be single-minded and intentionally focused and non-duplicitous. So no dirt and no divided allegiance. That's the pure in heart. Right? Here's what he says to you, and we'll close with this. They will see God. Whoa, what in the world does that mean? Now, let me give you just, just a couple more minutes. I'll give you a little bit of Greek here. They shall see God is in what is called the future indicative sense or tense. The future indicative. And what that means is people with a pure heart will be continuously seeing God at work in their lives. They will see God everywhere, working all the time. So it's not saying, I'm going to see God face to face. If you saw God face to face, you'd melt. You'd vaporize because no man can see God and live. It's not talking about that. It's saying you're going to experience intimate fellowship with God on a moment-by-moment basis when the heart is single and non-dirty. The only way you keep it non-dirty, keep short accounts with God. Keep your heart clean. The pure in heart will have the inward capacity to learn of and receive revelation about God. We'll see God. And one day, soon and very soon, we're going to see the king. And then John said, we will see him as he is, so we will know even as we have been known, because we will, when we go there, see him as he is. Wow. Isn't that powerful? Well, that's the end of the uh, Beatitudes for tonight. But we're doing so good. I want to take a question or two if we have any. Does anybody have a question? Because Connor is very quick, and he's going to run. Okay, right over here. And let me just take a couple of quick questions. Uh, yeah, uh, I was reading in uh, Ezekiel yeah. chapter 40, which I, yep. it seems like it is a uh, future prophecy, prophecy yet to be fulfilled. Mm-hmm. It's talking about a new temple mm-hmm. and new sacrifices to be made, and one of those is uh, a sin offering. Now, my understanding was that Jesus' death and resurrection was atonement for all sin for all time. Mm-hmm. So what's going on here? I'd have to look at the verse. I need to see it in its context, but my guess is, um, you said Ezekiel 40? 40, and then on through uh, several chapters there, it talks about uh, different uh, sacrifices and the sin sacrifice being one of them. I don't think that he's talking there about Christ. He's talking about the sacrifices made in the temple Uh, because he can't all the different sacrifices you just named he would not have put all of those under the heading of christ um i i believe he would have to have been talking about the old testament temple um at that time now again i need to look at the verse and you know because i don't have it the bible here sure but that's what i'm that's what i'm guessing okay because all those other headings you know, he, a sin sacrifice, yeah, he could be talking about Jesus, but all the rest of it, it sounds like he's talking about temple sacrifices. That would be my best guess Okay. just right off the bat. But I can look it up and, and give it to you next week. Okay, yeah, that would be great. I'll do Thank that. You. Thank you. All right. Uh, anybody else have a question? Way over here. They're going to work you, Connor. <laughs> young man. Yeah. Um, 
Ezekiel, Daniel, and Jeremiah, they're all like forward. That's when the temple was um, broken down. And then in Nehemiah, it comes back. So that's the sacrifice. Was the new up. temple. Yeah. The rebuilt temple. The rebuilt temple. Yeah. It sounds like temple sacrifices to me is not Christ. Yes. Anyone else? Back there. Boy, bless you, Connor. <laughs> Amen. All right. All right. Here's my question for you. Since I can't call in for your show daily. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, my question is, uh, when the revelation happens and we get all caught up, how are other people going to get saved since the church is going to be gone during the rapture time? Okay. When the rapture, how, how are they going to be saved? They are going to be saved. As a matter of fact, there's a huge harvest during the Great Tribulation. Uh, they'll be saved in, in really two key ways. The Bible in the book of Revelation talks about 144,000 Jews that are going to be marked by God. They will become 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams. 12,000 out of each tribe. 12 times 12, 144. So they will cover the earth with the gospel. And there's also an angel that flies around the world, uh, not with cherub wings, and don't get me wrong, but they, the, the angel literally flies around the world proclaiming the gospel to the world. There's also two witnesses in the streets of Jerusalem. Uh, I happen to believe it's Moses and Elijah. Come back. That's just what I think. But those two witnesses will be preaching to the world uh, for a season of time, and then they are killed by the Antichrist and his forces, and they are resurrected in front of the eyes of the world. I mean, I've often thought about it. ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN, MS, DNC, LSD, uh, MS, NBC, Fox, all the rest. Because John was literally predicting mass media when there wasn't any. Because he says when they get up from the dead, the whole world sees them. When John wrote that, the whole world couldn't see anything all at once in real time. But they will see it then. And they ascend into heaven in front of the eyes of the whole world. You think that won't preach? That will preach. So there's a lot of ways. And, and you'll also see that there is a vast number of souls in heaven that John sees that have been beheaded. And are asking God, how long before you avenge what was done to us? And that's tribulation saints. That's what we call them, tribulation saints. Now, some people say, well, if I can be saved in the tribulation, I'm just going to have fun now. And when the rapture happens and I miss it, oh, well, I'll just get saved during the tribulation. That's so stupid. That is just nonsense. Because if you weren't convicted before the rapture, you're not going to be convicted after the rapture. You're, you're just, you know, that's just one of those things. Yeah, me and my buddy is going to have fun in hell. We'll pull up the pickup and break out the beer and talk about old times in hell. You'll never see anybody in hell. You won't see old buddies in hell. You'll see Satan. You'll see demons. You'll see flames. But you won't be fellowshipping with anybody. And you will be filled with regret. All right. Is there one more question? Ah, right here. Well, they can't, so you, you got to go on mic. This goes on radio nationwide, by the way. That's okay. No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. I've been studying the book of John, and um, it's uh, John chapter 5, verse 18, and uh, it's about the authority of the Son. So uh, for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him, not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Um, made me think about how we refer to God as our father. And what if 
because of course we're not I don't believe we're equal to God what if a um, non-believer would ask me like why does it say that that Jesus is saying or Jesus himself is equal with God but what about you you call him father are you equal to God so if someone asked me, no, no, because Jesus, number one, in the in the Lord's prayer, told us to refer to Him as Heavenly Father. They, He said, they said, teach us to pray. He said, okay, here's how you pray: Our Father, who art in heaven, right. hallowed be Thy name. So Jesus, over and over again, said, um, you can go to Him yourself now that you know Me, and pray in My name because He's your Father. Paul said when we're saved, we say, Abba, Father, because we've literally been spiritually begotten of God. Now, Jesus was in trouble, and they were saying that about him. Connor, are you going to get the mic? Where'd you go? I'm right here. Oh, you're right there. Okay. <laughs> I couldn't see you. All right. Now, he was in trouble because he said he was God. Now, there are a lot of people who say, Jesus never said he was God. Where do you get that? He did, too. In front of the Pharisees, he said, I am. That was a clear designation of God out of the Old Testament. In the beginning, it was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. When they worshiped him as God, he didn't stop them. No, because he said, I am God. And so we got to understand the Trinity. We need to really understand there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. Now watch this. There's an old heresy called modalism. Modalism says that there is God, and then the Son and the Spirit are just emanations or manifestations of that one God, but they are not distinct personalities. It's called the modalistic heresy. No, they are three distinct personalities. It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I could really teach on this, the Trinity. There's such confusion about the Trinity. Um, and when Jesus came to earth, this has become a real controversy, by the way, right now in the body of Christ, that when Jesus came to earth, he left his divinity in heaven. He, it, it, and it's out of Philippians 2, I think verse 5, where it says he emptied himself. He, he emptied himself and came to earth, taking, uh, uh, taking the form of a servant. He emptied himself. Now, those that teach... Emptying himself means that he left everything in heaven. His divinity, his everything that he had to become a human. And that the miracles he did were not as all God, all man, or truly God, truly man, or he never did a miracle as God. But every miracle he did was by faith and the anointing of the Spirit so that we could learn from him to do the same thing. No. No. There's never been a microsecond that Jesus left his deity anywhere. Are you following me? No, no. When he was on earth, he's truly human and truly God. Okay? And he had a dual nature. On earth, Jesus had a dual nature. He was truly human. He could feel. He hungered. He sorrowed. He wept. But he was also truly God. On the Mount of Transfiguration, what happened to him? He lit up like the sun. What was that? That was the truly God part. But when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it's possible to let this pass from me, please let it pass from me. If there's any other way, that's truly human. 
on the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the human. But when he was in the grave, he raised himself up. That's God. Okay? So this is called the kenosis heresy. Because uh, emptying himself comes from the Greek word kanao. And it means you, you empty yourself. But it's not telling us what he actually did. He left his privileges up there. But every minute while he was on earth, before he was water baptized, and the Spirit came upon him like the dove, he was God in check. He was God veiled. He was God held back. But still truly God. How do you un-God God? You can't un-God God. And once God is un-Godded, how does un-Godded God God himself again? Did I say it? Yes, I'm, I'm trying to get you to get it. How can God, who made everything, become ungodded? Leave his de deity like a backpack. Well, I'm putting down my deity now that I'm leaving heaven and going to earth for 33 years and going to die for them. So here's the backpack. Here's my deity. I'll pick it back up again when I come back. No. Not for a microsecond. Did Jesus ever lay aside his deity? Okay, stand up with me. I didn't mean to get into all that. We just got into all that. Okay. Um, but you got to be so careful of this teaching because what they're doing is they're taking the deity away from Jesus. When Jesus looked at you on earth, God was looking at you. That's how he could read your mail. God was looking at you. And he knew you head to toe. So let's keep Jesus, Jesus. That's why I'm starting this Sunday. Will the real Jesus please stand up? Because there's a lot of fake ones out there. We're going to learn about the real Jesus. We're going to get our Christology straight. Right? Okay. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the truth that is in the Word of God. Thank you, Lord, that you are very God, very man, truly God, truly man. And you died on the cross for our sins, and you raised yourself up three days later. Thank you, Lord. We praise you. Help us to walk in the truth of the word. Help us, Lord, to more and more and more see purity of heart. Help us to be true to our confession seven days a week. In Jesus' name, be with all the people here and those that are watching. Lord, thank you for blessing us, getting us home safely. In Jesus' name, amen.